I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Let's turn to God's Word. Let me lead us in prayer uh, as we do. It says in the book of Psalms, chapter 119, verse 89, Your word, Lord, Yahweh, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your laws endure to this day, for all things serve you. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so I obey your word. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Father, we know that many who profess some kind of adherence to the Bible don't take it seriously, don't take it literally. May that not be found here with me or any of us. Thank you for the Word of God that it is, it's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, it is truth. As Jesus said in John 17, down to the smallest stroke of a pen, as He said in the Sermon on the Mount, smallest syllable, the smallest stroke of a Hebrew letter. We thank you that we have a book of truth. Forgive us when we don't spend time in it, or when we do read it, we're not engaged with our heart and mind, or we are sloppy in interpretation. May you give us understanding this morning. I pray for those here who don't know Christ, that you would open their ears and eyes and draw them to the Savior. Pray for those here with hardened hearts, that you and your Holy Spirit would soften them today and surprise them by making them receptive. For the rest of us who know Jesus, may we be fed and challenged. And Father, if we're not currently making disciples, may you convict us to follow the example of Jesus. We pray and ask this in his name. Amen. Matthew 28, we are in a series called Following Jesus, and we've learned that Matthew's gospel, sometimes called the teaching gospel or the discipleship gospel, has more of the teachings of Jesus than any of the other gospels. And we, sometimes I call this Matthew's gospel, that's a bit of a misnomer, as if Matthew had a gospel and Mark had a gospel. In the Greek text, it's the gospel according to Matthew, or the gospel. So it's the gospel and then according to John. It's all one gospel, and then it comes through four different lenses. The theme of the sermons, Matthew built this around. He built his uh, gospel around five sermons of Jesus. The theme of these sermons is this. If we're going to call ourselves a disciple of Jesus, we can't just follow him any which way we want. Young people especially want you to hear that. A lot of people say they follow Jesus. A lot of people call on Jesus. A lot of people sing songs of Jesus. A lot of people use the word Jesus. Paul is very clear. In 2 Corinthians 11, there is another Jesus. There is another spirit and there is another gospel. You can be very sincere and think you're following the true thing and be completely lost in following a counterfeit Christ, a counterfeit Jesus. So Jesus is very clear about his claims. He made extreme claims. He never balked at making extreme claims for his disciples. And he says, if you want to follow me, you got to come on my terms. You can't come on your own terms. And that's the theme of these sermons. This weekend, we come to, we're closing the series, and we come to his final recorded words in the book of Matthew, in fact, in the Gospels, Matthew 28, last paragraph, about reproducing spiritually, about making disciples. And it's a command that is to begin with our children, but it has to go past our children. 
It doesn't end with discipling our kids. If we're only investing in them and nobody else, we're not obeying this command. And this command is critical for completing the Great Commission, for the health of our church, for your own spiritual health, and for advancing the kingdom of God. It's important to note that this command, making disciples, is not a suggestion if you have some time in your schedule. I'm going to talk about schedules at the end of this sermon. I'm going to crank it down just a bit on all of us. But this is not a suggestion. Oh, if you have some extra time, it'd be nice if you did this. This is a command. It's a command on anyone who calls themselves a follower of Christ. Clergy, laity, doesn't matter. If I say I'm a follower of Jesus, I am to be obeying this command, and it's to be a top priority, according to him, around which I build my life if I'm a follower. The command to make disciples is captured in three participles. Well, English lesson here this morning, what's a participle? Participle is a form of a verb that's used as an adjective. Some people think the main verb here is going or something. It's not. The main verb here is make disciples. So the three participles are what I've built the sermon around because they define what it means to make disciples. Three participles are going, baptizing, teaching. That's what it means to make disciples. So if you know Jesus, if you say, I'm born again, I'm a follower of Jesus, Here's your three participles this morning you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be going, and then you're supposed to be baptizing or getting involved with people getting baptized, and then teaching. That's what it means to make disciples. So with that, let's dive in. By the end of this gospel, Jesus is risen from the dead, and he's now exercising authority over everything. And that comes out very clearly in the original Greek text. Some of you know this was written in Greek. Some of you may not know that. It was written in Koine Greek, not classical Greek. But in the original Greek text, the word all is very dominant here. Now, it comes out in varying degrees in English translations. Sometimes when a word is repeated a number of times in Greek or Hebrew in a text, an English translation will sometimes switch it up with some synonyms. And that can be valuable and not valuable. But here, I just want to point out the word all in the original Greek text is very dominant. The risen Christ is saying, look it, I'm exercising authority over all creation. I've risen from the dead. I've conquered Satan, sin, and death. And now I'm about all. So verse 18, he's exercising all authority in the Greek text. Verse 19, over all nations. You're going to make disciples of all nations. Verse 20, you're to obey all things. Now, the NIV says everything, and that's fine. That's a a fair translation. But again, it's the word all. You're to obey all things I've commanded, and then I am with you, the Greek says, all days. So, I was reading reading this text this morning in Greek, and, and just looking, and again, the four times just in this one paragraph, the word all is so dominant. Jesus is clearly exercising authority over all things. The main verb, however, is make disciples. Then it's modified with these three participles. Now, the first word, going, or go, first participle, can better think a better translation is really, as you're going, I mean, it's, it's an ongoing thought, as you're going, make disciples, begins how? And it begins this way, it begins by sharing the gospel as we're going. That's why we have follow, connect, make. Those words out in our lobby. The first step of discipleship beyond ourselves being converted is going. 
And as we're going, as you're going to school, as you're going to the marketplace, as you're going to your job, as you're going out in the neighborhood, as you're going to the grocery store, Walmart, as we're going, we're supposed to be doing something, and that is sharing the gospel. That is what Jesus is commissioning here. In the gospel, God's master plan is for that gospel to be shared one-on-one. And you say, well, what about mass evangelism? Well, there is, there's, there's been times in history where there's been mass evangelism, mass revival. Think of Billy Graham, if you know the name. If you don't, shame on you, Google it. But only the guys preach the gospel to more people than anybody in history. But Billy Graham would hold mass evangelism rallies. His largest one was in Seoul, South Korea, over a million people. If you've never seen the aerial photograph, it's incredible. It's incredible. I had the privilege to hear Billy Graham once at uh, Silver Dome in Michigan, 80,000 people. But that's not how most evangelism occurs. Let's be honest. Most evangelism occurs one-on-one, and that's the model Jesus laid down. So what is the gospel we're supposed to be going with? Let's be clear what it's not. The gospel is not good advice. It's not inspirational goodies. It's not try to follow the Ten Commandments. That's not the gospel. I've had people say that. Oh, yeah, I guess you, you try to follow the Ten Commandments live a good life. That's not the gospel. That's Buddhism or something, but it's not the gospel. The gospel is not the gospel of moralism. So what is it? Well, let's be very clear. You can't, oh, you, you cannot overstate this. The gospel is the good news. It's an announcement. It's a declaration that God is rescuing lost sinners through the death, resurrection, and ascension of His Son. That's the gospel. The gospel is a true story that God has invaded history and is reconciling alienated, God-hating sinners with Himself. See, the world's religions are more about rules than a story. The gospel is more about a true story than rules. The gospel is bigger, by the way, than just the plan of salvation. Plan of salvation, repent and believe, that's, that's the summons of the gospel. The gospel goes from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story of redemption. And it should fire you up, especially if you're a young person, young people, old people, wake up, everybody, (laughs) all of us. The gospel should fire us up. It's an announcement. It's a declaration. And it's bigger than just the plan of salvation. It's the story that goes from Genesis to Revelation that connects all the dots. And it's about the fact that it's an announcement. God is on the move. And it's a good news declaration that leads to a summons, which is what? Since God's on the move, since Christ is the exalted Messiah who was murdered, buried, resurrected, and ascended, the summons of the gospel then is repent, turn around, go the other direction, grieve, wail over your sin, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the summons of the gospel. That's what we're supposed to do when we're going, is take that out to our kids, our grandkids, people around us, people we're working with at church, perhaps in a youth group or in our community group, but that's what we're to take as we're going. And ladies and gentlemen, young people, that is the gospel that transformed the Roman Empire. Let me give you one example. One of my favorite writers, Rodney Stark, is a Christian and a first-class sociologist. He's, I think he's on the research faculty of Baylor University now. He has a book out he wrote a few years ago called The Cities of God, and he did something that sociologists love to do. He sifted through piles of data. The subtitle is The Story of How Christianity Became an Urban Movement and Conquered the Roman Empire, which caught my attention. 
And he shows, after sifting through piles and piles of evidence, of the 31 largest cities in the Roman Empire in the first century, that the gospel spread very quickly. It exploded as people shared one-on-one. And he tells us this, by 100 AD, just 100 years into this whole thing, there is strong evidence of churches already started and thriving in Italy, Greece, Turkey, Egypt, Syria, and Israel. And then if you fast forward a couple hundred more years, there is strong evidence archaeologically, historically, of churches thriving and being started in Britain, Spain, Western Europe as far as France, Central Europe, North Africa, Palestine, much of Asia, Arabia, Pakistan, India, China, Iran, and Iraq. That's how fast the gospel spread. Interestingly, uh, Becky and I um, have had the privilege to be in Saudi Arabia a couple of times, and one of the visits, we were taken out to the desert to a dump, it's a landfill now, where a fourth century chapel has been discovered. The Saudi government is doing nothing to preserve it. They've fenced it in, put signs, keep out, and they're just letting it fall apart. But it's still there. We got in. I won't tell you how, but we got in. Way out in the middle of nowhere in the desert, and there's still crosses on this thing. From the fourth century, they can't hide the fact that chapels were being built already in the forest. So you try to bury it up. Totalitarian governments try to bury this stuff all the time. Facts have a stubborn way of coming out of the ground. And there's evidence that already in the fourth century, just a simple chapel already built on the Arabian Peninsula. Gospel exploded all over the Roman Empire. And it's this global spread that's indicated and predicted and challenged in verse 19. Go make disciples of what? Of your neighborhood. No, it says, I mean, you're to start there, but it says of all nations. Of all na- Now, the word nations, some of you know, some of you don't. When we hear the word nation today, we think, oh, political boundaries. We think, oh, those are the places that have their own license plate, and their own flag, their own passports, and their own currency. That's new in history. That goes back to about the 17th century in the Treaty of Westphalia. What was that? It was a series of peace treaties at the end of the 30-year war. 30-year war, just to brush this up on your history, saw about a third of Europe killed or dying from disease during that 30-year war. And so the Treaty of Westphalia came up with an attempt to bring peace by creating nation-states clear boundaries, and the goal was to try to balance power and bring some kind of civility. That's where we get our concept of nation today. And we think, oh, the nation of Canada and the nation of India and the nation of this and the nation of that. That's not the biblical word. The biblical word ethne means a separate cultural ethnic linguistic group. And so a country today like India, called a nation, really biblically has about anywhere from four to five, six thousand nations within India of people groups. That's what nation means. And Jesus is saying, the gospel, I'm telling you, is to go to all peoples. That's a, that's a faithful translation. And one more thing, this has deep roots in Genesis. In fact, it has deep roots in the Abrahamic covenant back in Genesis 12, when God says, I'm going to bless you and I will bless all peoples, that's the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word ethne, I'm going to bless all peoples through you. So already back in Genesis, the design is that the gospel is going to all peoples. 
So, in other words, Jesus isn't giving the great commission here. He's reviewing it. That's the point. He's reviewing it. These weren't the sharpest guys in the book. And he's reviewing it. I was reading through the Gospels this week and noting some of the things Jesus called his disciples. Very interesting. He called them evil. He called them dull. Are you so slow? He called them faint at heart. He called them fearful. He called them all kinds of things. They didn't always get it. So here he's, he's actually reviewing the Great Commission here. He's not just giving it. They should have known this stuff. This stuff goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 at the earliest. So let's go on to the next part of simple baptizing. In other words, making disciples, hear this, young people hear this, making disciples is more than just evangelism. It's more than handing out a track. It's more than sharing Jesus. It's more than making converts. That's not the end of disciple making. The second participle here is baptizing them, whether we're doing it ourselves or nudging somebody else to get it done. But it, that's the second part of the process. Go make disciples of all ethne, pontata ethne, all nations. And then do something. Make sure they get baptized. Now, the Greek verb baptizo means what? The problem is, if you only have an English translation, you don't know because it's not translated in our Bibles. Some words are not translated. It's transliterated. You say, well, what, what's the difference? Well, let me give you an example. If you take the Greek word agape, some of you know the word. It's a Greek word. If you plug in English letters, A-G-A-P-E, you get agape. But it's not an English word. Well, I mean, we've sort of made it one, but it's not really an English word. If you translate agape from Greek, what do you get? You get the English word love. That's translation. The problem with baptizo, it's only been transliterated in English translations. And one of the reasons is because it's a divisive issue. Translators of Bibles and publishers want to make money. And if you made a translation that actually translated the word, you would cut off a massive number, a massive chunk of your market. For selling these things. So they leave the word and it's been left transliterated for centuries. So the question is, how do you translate baptizo? And it's very simple. It's not a hard word to translate. In fact, it was a word widely used in the secular culture of its day. It was used if somebody drowned, they were baptized. If a ship sunk, it was baptized. If you buried a dead person, you baptized them. If you dyed a garment, it was baptized. You get the idea. It's being buried. The best English equivalent for translating baptizo, immersion, submersion, cover or bury. That's what the word means. New Testament knows nothing of infants being sprinkled. That's why we don't sprinkle infants. We dedicate them as they did in the old covenant, but we don't, we don't sprinkle them because there's no indication in the word or in practice that they were sprinkled in the New Testament. So Jesus commands, after I go, after I'm sharing the gospel, then I'm to make sure the very next thing, either for myself or the people I'm working with, my kids or other people around me, is that they're getting baptized. F.F. Bruce, some of you know the name, some of you don't, great New Testament scholar for years. He made a very pointed statement. He said, the New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian. That simple. It's an oxymoron. Why? Because the, in, in Acts, the, the day they were converted, they were baptized. Here's people coming out of pagan sex cults and all kinds of crazy, occultic, demonic worship. They get saved, they're barely saved, and they're put under water. They didn't need to study it. They didn't need to grow in Christ. They didn't do anything. They were baptized before they had their next meal. 
Why? Because of what it signifies. Baptism does nothing magically to us, and we're not supposed to be spiritually mature, and we're not supposed to pray about it. Before we do it, we're supposed to obey Christ. Why? Because of what it signifies. What is baptism? It's, a, it's, a, it's an announcement. I am now shifting my allegiance in life, and I'm going public for Jesus. That's all it is. But it is significant because it's an obedience issue. So if I'm sitting in a chair professing Christ and I'm not baptized, I'm being disobedient. It's that simple. I've had people say, well, i got to pray about it more. No, you don't. There's certain things you don't need to pray about. You don't need to pray about whether you need to read your Bible. You don't need to pray about whether you should tithe or honor the Lord's day and keep the Sabbath day holy. You don't need to pray about a lot of different things. It just it says do it, do it. Or it says don't do it, don't do it. Very simple. Same thing with baptism. Just to do it. And there's lots of examples in the New Testament, and interesting in the New Testament, it always comes after conversion. Always. There's no record of anybody being sprinkled, and there's no record of anybody ever being baptized prior to their conversion. So there's a witch in Samaria in Acts 9. There's a man from Ethiopia in Acts 9. There's the Apostle Paul, and I mean, those two are in Acts 8. Paul is in chapter 9. And then I'm going to look at one, if you turn to Acts 16, the very first woman female convert, the very first convert we know of in Europe is a businesswoman, what is from today Turkey, she was from Thyatira, she's in what is today northern Greece on business apparently, and she encounters the apostle Paul and she's converted and baptized immediately. That's the biblical record. That's the biblical practice. Acts chapter 16 verses 11 and following. I'm going to read these. I love this story. We had the privilege one time to be up in Philippi, and there's a traditional site where Lydia was baptized, and nobody was there that day, so we stopped the bus, and we asked anybody who wanted to get baptized, and we had, I think, six, seven, eight people chose to be baptized in the traditional site right outside of Philippi. From Troas, we went out to sea and sailed straight for Samthras, and the next day we went to Neapolis, and from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and leading city of that district of Macedonia. Today it's politically, geographically, it's, in what's north, it's called northern Greece now. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river. And the river's still there. Where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira. That is in what today is western Turkey. In fact, if you know the book of Revelation... Jesus dictated a letter to the church at what? Thyatira. It's not the first time this shows up. So this is a businesswoman, Lydia, from Thyatira. She's a dealer in purple cloth. Next phrase confuses some. She was a worshiper of God. That is code in the New Testament for somebody who is sensitive or being drawn by God, but they're not yet born again. And we know that because the very next phrase, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. It's one of the clearest references of God opening the heart and eyes of somebody. And we know based on Romans 9 and other passages, God chooses to do this for some and not others. We don't know why, and he says we don't have any right to question him. But when it comes to his elect, he is very committed. When the gospel is preached, they will respond by him, not them, opening their heart and eyes. And so the implication is she's converted, Verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, almost that fast, saved 
baptized. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. So baptism is always underwater to identify being buried and risen with Christ. In the New Testament, it always comes after conversion, and it's always immediate, always immediate. This leads to our last participle, because even if I've shared the gospel, and let's say that person even has made a commitment, and even I manage either to baptize them or get them baptized and get them underwater, I'm not done. I'm not done. That's not the end of disciple-making. The third participle is teaching them. And that means this, there is a huge educational component to the Great Commission that gets left out. Somehow, some way, and this happens in evangelicalism, phrases get interpreted and heard certain ways. When we hear the phrase today, the Great Commission, virtually all Bible-believing Christians hear, oh yeah, share the gospel, evangelize. That's part of it? But then there's baptism, and then there's teaching. We leave out this in our thinking. Some old wag said this is the great omission from the great commission, is the teaching part of it. And we're, we're told exactly what there is to be teaching. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded. Teach them to obey everything I commanded. You know, a lot of people come to church in all kinds of churches, walk in, sit down, do their thing, check the box, walk out, and that's about the end of it. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, that is not biblical Christianity at all. It's not even close. I was having lunch with a guy I was discipling a number of years ago in our other church, Michigan. Great guy. In fact, I've even talked to him recently. Love him. I'll call him Fred. And we were sitting having lunch one day, and I had been discipling him, and he was telling me at this lunch how miserable he was, and nothing was going right, and he was just in a grumpy mood that day. And I finally looked, after listening and eating most of my meal, I looked across and I said, tell me, Fred, what are you doing in the Christian life right now? Nothing. Oh, well, that's consistent with what we've been discipling about. Okay, great. Are you serving anywhere in the local church? No. Are you investing in anybody like we've been talking, discipling? No. So let me get this straight. You're just coming, flattening your rear end once a week, leaving, and you wonder why you're miserable. Well, I don't put it that way. Well, <laughs> that's what you're doing. That's not New Testament Christianity. That's not biblical Christianity. We've gone over this and over this and over this. Inside so the opportunity to love on my friend one more time and say, look it. There's a word for somebody that comes to church, you know, either every week or occasionally. There's a word for somebody who comes to church off and on and is not serving and is not giving and is not baptized and is not discipling. You know what that word is? Disobedient. That's at best or unconverted at worst. And that's why Jesus' command here, and this is for clergy, every bit as much as laity. This is not just on, oh, it's on, it's, it's on all of us. In fact, leaders should be setting the example here of all people. They should be the ones setting the example. You, you should be looking to your leaders in your church here asking who you're discipling. It's a fair question to ask any pastor, elder, any of your lay leaders here. Who are you discipling? Who are you investing in? Who are you pouring your... And by the way, I pointed this out not too long ago. Go back to Matthew 28. It's very interesting. 
Worth noting Jesus' last recorded words. He's very deliberate. Here is his last recorded words, his final charge to his disciples, and he could have said lots of stuff. He could have said, oh, by the way, I'm leaving. Remember the cross. He could have said, remember the resurrection. He could have said, I'm going to ascend to heaven. Remember that. He could have said, remember, I'm coming again. He could have said all kinds of stuff. What does he say? His very last recorded words are, go as you're going, baptize, and don't forget teach them to obey everything I have commanded. We're not just to teach others His commands. We're to teach them to obey His commands. I mean, the the text couldn't be clearer. Teaching them, verse 20, to obey everything I've commanded you. So sharing the gospel is just the very beginning of making disciples. Then it's making sure they're baptized, and then it's teaching them. That means I'm spending time, I'm walking, I'm st- and it doesn't say how often. There's no command, you know, you're supposed to meet this number of times or this often. Sometimes we disciple people, and even with technology today, we have greater opportunities. We can disciple them from afar, we can meet with them a few times, we can meet with them ongoing. There's no prescription for all often, but it, there is a prescription of coming alongside people and helping and making sure that they're learning to obey everything Christ commanded. That's a lot of stuff. That implies a long-term commitment of some kind. That's why this is so critical. And it's interesting that that's how Jesus chose to give his final charge. Bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, the Great Commission is not just about decisions, it's about disciples. It's not about just getting decisions, it's about making disciples. Where does it begin? If I have children and grandchildren, that's where it begins, but that's not where it ends. If I'm only investing in that little club, that's not enough. That better be going on, but it needs to be extending beyond that. Every Christian is called to be a disciple-maker and investing in those who are less mature spiritually. I want to break down this teaching participle a little bit more. Because when you look at teaching in the New Testament, in the example of Jesus, it includes two things. Inviting, informing. And I want to drill down on those just a minute, okay? Inviting. Jesus was very clear in his example and his teaching of inviting people. You don't just sit around and wait for people to show up and ask you. Although they might. But it's Jesus set the example of going out and inviting Taking, or taking the initiative. He ministered to the masses, but he only discipled a few. And he handpicked those very carefully. And even then, we know of the 12, there were three that he even spent more time with. Jesus knew that less was more in the long run. And he asked, hey, well, uh, okay, I know Jesus and I'm, I'm not doing this. What do I do? Well, there's lots of ways you can start investing. You, you can become a community group leader. And get involved in our community groups and start helping others understand Scripture and get involved in community and prayer. That is a way of investing in others or even inviting somebody in your current community group to go deeper with you offline. We have a new ministry called D-Groups. D-Groups, are uh, it's a ministry that goes about six to nine months. They are gender-specific and their focus is on developing spiritual disciplines. They meet weekly. And the goal there is to go deeper. We're looking for more D-group leaders. You could get involved in Nexus, our, our youth ministry. You could get involved in Awana or Sunday school. There's multiple different... You could do one-on-one. 
Becky and I have done, you know, all kinds of different ways of discipling, but the point is taking the initiative, inviting and spending time with helping people go deeper in the Christian life. Jesus took the initiative and invited. I've had a number of men do that with me. My own dad spent a lot of time investing in me spiritually. My pastor, Chuck Warren, who used to be the district superintendent in this district, spent a lot of time. I did an internship under him. He married Becky and I, and he took me under his wing and taught me all kinds of stuff and invited me in. One of the men that had a huge impact on me as a teenager was a guy named Roy Leno, who was a big strapping farmer in northern Michigan. He invited us into his life. He taught us the gospel. He taught us how to obey Jesus. He was dead serious. Interestingly, he not only taught us how to live, he taught us how to die. Because at age 42, he got a brain tumor and it killed him. And I had to watch a mentor, a hero, as a young person, die. And he died well. Left a wife and two beautiful girls at age 42. Are you ready to die? Are you investing? What are you going to stand at the gate with someday? And at this point, we should notice one of the most common misconceptions when it comes to discipling. And I think if there's one excuse that Becky and I have heard the most, here it is. I'm not mature enough yet to disciple somebody. Have you ever heard it? More important, have you ever said it? (laughs) No, don't raise your hand. It is probably the number one excuse we hear. Oh, I'm not mature enough to do that. Look it. There's no maturity requirement in the New Testament. If you've known Christ more than a week, you're qualified. Find somebody who knew Christ or knows Christ less than you, turn around and disciple them. That's how important it is and that's how significant it is and that's how intentional we are to be. There's no great requirement on being some kind of spiritual giant. In fact, people wait way too long to begin discipling and investing in somebody else. You say, well, what is it I'm supposed to do? Well, that comes with the second word, informing, information transfer. Too many people call discipling just getting together, hanging out and praying. That's not discipling. It's, it's getting together. There needs to be some kind of an information transfer. There's all kinds of ways to do this. But I'm investing in somebody else. And first thing is, don't just assume they're automatically saved whether they're in your community group, a D group, a Nexus group, a WANA, whatever, don't just assume, oh, yeah, yeah, they're, they're saved. They said they're saved. Go over the gospel. Ask them. Make sure they understand the gospel. So many people don't, and that they are truly born again. And then what do you do? Well, you help them to start getting into the Bible, get grounded in Scripture, get consistent in church. If we don't help them get consistent in a Bible-preaching church, they're not going to grow. They're going to go off the rails. You can't be a Christian and sit home and not attend a local church. I mean, unless you're physically incapacitated, and then we're thankful for the technology that allows live streaming. But if I am physically able and I'm just watching live streaming, that is not biblical Christianity. I am to be involved in a local church. And so I need to help these converts get involved in a local church. And then just simple stuff like how to use a concordance. A lot of people don't even know how to use a concordance, whether it's digitally or paper or what a study Bible is, or how to use a commentary. Get them involved in good books whenever Becky and I disciple somebody. First thing we do is we get them reading their Bible, we make sure they're consistent in a Bible teaching church, and we get them reading good, meaty books, and we make sure they're baptized. And that's the kind of thing we we impress on. Again, the goal of the Great Commission is not just getting decisions. It's making disciples, and there's a huge difference. 
Disciples are more than converts. They're baptized converts who are learning how to obey Jesus and have more mature people coming alongside, even if, they've only, even if the more mature person's only been saved for a month, and they're coming alongside helping them learn how to live the Christian life. And it's not a suggestion if we have some time in our schedule. Oh, schedule. Let's talk about that before we land the plane. I want to talk about what I think is the biggest hindrance to making disciples in middle-class American culture. And here it is. It's the average middle-class schedule in American culture. In a word, it's toxic. And it takes a lot of courage to confront this. We cannot make disciples consistently outside our family if I have the average American schedule. Why? Because the average middle-class American schedule is destructive to the family and to my spiritual health. And the spiritual health of my marriage and go beyond that. If you're out regularly more than three nights a week, on average, you're out too much. You're out too much. Extracurriculars and other things like that are eroding spiritual vitality of the American family, especially things like travel sports that demand such huge chunks of time and cause us to end up violating the Sabbath and God's holy day. What's the message sent to kids? That's what's really important. Oh, if we can get church occasionally make it, that's fine, but that's what's really critical. That's where we're going to put our time and money. You can say whatever you want when you bring your kids to church occasionally, but if that's what's taking your time and energy, message sent. And message will be received about what's really important in the Christian life. All right, what's summoned this morning? Number one, make sure we know Jesus is Lord and Savior. Can't disciple if I'm not a Christian. Got to make sure I know Christ and I've been born again. Number two, then asking God, how do I begin investing in others? And looking around, praying, who should I invest in? And it can look many different ways. Even how Becky and I personally disciple people is very different. There's no one template for how to... But the the example, the the, the command is do it. Be doing it. Be coming alongside others somehow and helping them get grounded in the Christian life. Whether it's once a week, once a month, whether it's a small group or it's one-on-one. Whatever books you use, it's it's being intentional about it. That's the key. And then thirdly making sure that you're helping them learn how to take the gospel beyond themselves. That's the, that's the multiplication principle. Anybody I've ever discipled, either in group or in one-on-one, my very last thing is I challenge them, now go do likewise. Because if it stops there, that's not multiplying anymore. I multiply. I'm going to close with a quote from Dr. Robert Coleman. I think he has written by far the best book. It's very small. Our whole staff was given this several years ago, The Master Plan of Evangelism. If you want to read one book on how Jesus did it, that's short, that's powerful and potent, Dr. Robert Coleman, Master Plan of Evangelism. I love when you can quote something that's pointed, and I didn't say this, I just reading what he said. Here, he used to teach where I went to seminary. Quote, the example of Jesus with teaching that making disciples can only be done by persons staying right with those they're seeking to lead. With such haphazard follow-up of believers, it's no wonder that about half of those who make professions fall away. Now, hear the rest of this. There is simply no substitute for getting with people. After all, if Jesus, the Son of God, found it necessary 
to stay almost constantly with his disciples for three years, and even then, one of them was lost. How can a church expect to do the job on an assembly line basis a few days out of the year? And the answer is, they can't. So if you know Christ, are you discipling anybody outside your nuclear family? Are you doing your kids? And then outside that, are you obeying? And if not, when will you step up? We need it, you need it, they need it, the kingdom of God needs it. Let's obey Jesus on this. Father, thank you for Jesus' example and the clarity. These are words that, that sting. And Father, let's be honest, a lot of us here aren't, aren't doing this at all. And so my prayer as a pastor, because I struggle with the same thing, is we would, have some, we, would, we would be intentional and clear some time to obey Jesus on this one. And may it make a difference in the kingdom of God in our area and in our particular local church. As we sing right now, may we sing and be all in with Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.